the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. It's time now for a smart plane talk regarding politics, Israel, and the law. This is the Victory Hour with Andrew Parker of Parker Daniels Keyboard. Wise counsel, winning results. Now, here's your host, Andrew Parker. I'm impressed with my attorney, Bernie. I'm impressed with his influential friends. He's got very big connections, and I follow his directions. It's 4 o'clock Sunday, and what does that mean? It means it's the best hour in radio of the week. It is the Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker, and every Sunday, as you know, because many of you are regular listeners, we talk politics, Israel, and the law. This week, we are going to shift gears to focus on the law. Also, some important policy issues and their interface with the law and making sure that our elected officials are following uh, the law. And that is uh, talking to our special guest today, attorney Doug Seaton, one time partner of yours truly. And we enjoyed practicing uh, law together as we both practiced primarily at that time in the labor and employment field, but we have always been uh, very interested in public policy, in uh, the political impacts on public policy. And now Doug is taking his uh, really substantial and fantastic legal acumen and bringing it to the public square uh, by uh, bringing to the courts some of the most important public policy issues of our day as he uh, is involved and, in fact, leading the Upper Midwest Law Center on some of the most important issues that we face today. And we're going to talk to Doug about some of those issues, including the leading issue of defunding the police, which sits at the Minnesota Supreme Court. We're going to talk about the arguments there and the case that Doug has headed up uh, which now rests at the highest court in the state of Minnesota. We are broadcasting uh, from, yes, indeed, the Parker Daniels Keyboard Studios again this week. And uh, if you have your number two pencil and your yellow pad handy, pull them out right now. Jot this down. Uh, future guests coming up in upcoming shows you may have jotted down from last week that Don Samuels may be joining us uh, this week. Uh, we had to shift gears, and we did, and Don is going to be joining us closer to the end of June. Uh, you may know Don Samuels as a one-time member of the Minneapolis City Council for many, many years, who uh, no longer is on the council and has thrown his hat in the ring to run in the Democratic primary coming up, I believe, in August for the 5th District Congressional Chair 
uh, or seat for the state of Minnesota, currently held by Democrat Ilhan Omar. Many of you know uh, Congresswoman Omar as a leading member of the squad of the progressive left woke movement. Uh, some of you uh, have the sense or belief that she has anti-Semitic tendencies. <clears throat> she has been called out for those. Uh, but Ilhan Omar is my representative in the U.S. Congress. And as wild as it may seem, she, she speaks for me, I guess. So Don Samuels is, uh, is trying to take away the Democratic endorsement from Ilhan Omar and uh, be the nominee for the Democratic Party uh, in the uh, general election. Of course, whoever wins the Democratic primary uh, will in all likelihood, win the 5th District seat, although uh, we do have a relatively strong uh, Republican running. It's just a, I think it's a plus 26 Democrat seat. And so it is very difficult uh, to rid ourselves of the Democratic progressive representation in the 5th. But it's possible that we could get someone who's much more moderate like Don Samuels rather than Ilhan Omar. So he'll be joining us toward the end of June. Uh, we've got uh, Pete Stauber, Michelle Fishbach, Tom Emmer coming on in weeks uh, beyond that over the summer. We hope to get on the show uh, sometime very soon. Kim Crockett, who is running for Secretary of State against incumbent uh, Democrat Steve Simon, and uh, I've known Kim for a number of years. Uh, she was in a bit of a dust-up recently that I was quite uh, surprised by, frankly, at the vitriol and the response and reaction to a video and a, a cartoon, effectively, uh, imagery that was put out. And it came from the Jewish community. So I'd like to uh, hear what Kim Crockett has to say about uh, that and we're going to try to have her on the show as well. But for today, we are going to turn to uh, the law and talk about how, uh, the, well, the different avenues uh, that uh, come together to drive public policy in our country. And some go through the legislature and are adopted through law some at the local level, city charters uh, or ordinances. Uh, some go through the court system to enforce the laws that have been uh, enacted in one form or another. Then there is common law and case law that interprets the common law that can create policy. Uh, but what is really interesting is how organizations form to develop and defend uh, our individual rights from sometimes the overstepping of the government. And uh, that's what Doug Seaton, a great lawyer, really, and uh, a very well-known lawyer in the state of Minnesota for many, many years, a top uh, labor and employment uh, lawyer in the state of Minnesota, defending companies across the state, uh, someone that I learned a great deal from uh, as a labor and employment lawyer myself in my early years, as uh, we were partners for a short period of time at a large law firm in downtown Minneapolis. And we uh, both left that law firm to form 
uh, different small firms uh, around the same time. It might have been this. I'm sure it was within the same yeah. year. Uh, and uh, we we both were prescient because that large law firm doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it sure spawned a lot of uh, great lawyers uh, and and great law firms and judges uh, uh, across uh, the state of Minnesota. So we welcome to the Victory Hour, uh, Doug Seaton. Welcome this wonderful Sunday, Douglas. Thank you very much, Andy. It's very glad to be with you. Very glad to be with you. So, Doug, you know, I, I mentioned the Upper Midwest Law Center uh, in uh, introducing kind of the importance of what you are doing now in your legal career. Uh, but maybe you can give the listeners a bit more sense of the background of the Law Center uh, and the genesis of its creation. Thank you, Andy. Happy to do that. As you said, you and I were partners for a time. We had a lot of interesting times together. We started our own firms, and I worked that with that firm as a labor and employment lawyer, largely for management, but also represented a lot of employees who were unhappy with their unions. And that was part of the start of the Upper Midwest Law Center. So after what turned into uh, close to 25 years with that law firm, after our original big firm, uh, I started the Upper Midwest Law Center. It's now three and a half years ago. So wow. time flies uh, yeah. in, when you're having this kind of fun. Uh, and as you well know, Andy, but not all listeners do, it's a nonprofit, I guess I'll call it a conservative side of the street, public interest law firm. Uh, we represent people who uh, can't afford their own representation, who are being afflicted, I'll say, by... Uh, government overreach, constitutional violations, uh, public union, government union uh, abuses of one kind or another. Uh, and that's what we do. We, we fight those fights all the time and uh, have people calling us every day with uh, stories uh, that are quite quite uh, heart, heartrending uh, about the abuse they are suffering. And uh, so that's, that's how we got the start. We're very happy to do it. We're donor-supported, nonprofit. Uh, we're a 501c3, as you know, and uh, we rely on donors, and we're happy to have people inquire of us if they're interested in learning more about us. They can check the Upper Midwest Law Center. Just put it in your, your browser, your search engine, and you'll find our website, uh, and many viewers have done that, and we rely on them checking in on us, seeing what we're doing, and bringing us ideas for the kinds of, of law fights that ought to be engaged in. We can't do it all. We're two lawyers going on three next month. But we're no, very, good for you. Growing. Thank you. We're growing. But we do what we can, and we're very interested in being part of the solution uh, in Minnesota. Doug, uh, talk a little bit about some of the early cases in the that the Upper Midwest Law Center uh, took on and to give a sense of the type of case uh, that you look at. Yes, happy to do that, Andy. Uh, we, we've got the starting point of the cases were these types of cases where in my old firm, I, I just passed the hat to try to do these kinds of cases, which where we didn't charge uh, uh, plaintiffs anything. And we fought against the SEIU and AFSCME trying to prevent what we thought was a really predatory uh, unionization effort against child care providers uh, and then against uh, personal care attendants. And we stopped the child care 
travesty, which was an attempt uh, by Governor Dayton to impose unions on child care providers. And these are business people themselves running small child care centers in their own homes, typically. And yet they were trying to impose a union on them simply to take their money, basically. Uh, and uh, we, we fought that and stopped it. So 5,000 child care providers in Minnesota are free of AFSCME and SEIU uh, and dues deductions because we won that fight. The PCA fight was harder, and we couldn't bring it off. We're hoping we have a reprise and can actually help personal care attendants as well. The personal care attendants, and you know some of this story I know, uh, are people who are really working for their own family members, typically beneficiaries of, of Medicaid help. And the Medicaid pays for usually a family member a very low rate of pay to help them as a caretaker. And uh, what uh, happened in that instance, too, is the SEIU said, oh, boy, there's money here to get. And they've been deducting dues uh, from the poor personal care attendants for going on uh, 15 years now. And we've been uh, we fought that fight. We had 11,000 personal care attendants who said no to the union. It was the largest decertification vote against a union in U.S. history. But we were stymied on technicalities, I'll say, and we were able to bring it off successfully. But we're hoping, again, to be able to fight that fight and get the PCAs uh, out of that thraldom to SEIU, simply taking their money, really providing no service to speak of in return. Because people are only getting a Medicaid benefit that's determined by law, and there really isn't any role for the union except to take their money. And we want yeah, to stop and, you it. Know, it's amazing how the law is written to allow unions to automatically deduct money from people's account, whether they want to be a part of the union or not. They're automatically in. They got to pay something. It could be fair share. It could be full dues. But uh, the point is, it automatically occurs even when you get no benefit for it. It's just removed in order to uh, fund labor to union activity, much of which uh, the individual may disagree with. You're exactly right about that. And we have fought that with the PCAs. And now, as the Upper Midwest Law Center, we've taken that fight to, uh, to the teachers union and other government unions as well, who, uh, just as you say, Andy, are taking money from people, whether they like it or not. And even though the Supreme Court has said there's no obligation on the part of people represented by a government union to pay that union, the unions have, have tried to set all kinds of hurdles on people quitting and stopping the dues deduction that they suffer from the outset. And so they get no information. The employer doesn't give them any information, and the union certainly doesn't. So we're among the few who are trying to get that word out to people that they don't have to join. And if they have joined, they can stop it and get the money back that they've been uh, that they've been paying and stop the deduction. And that's part of the fight we're fighting. So that's an example of the Upper Midwest Law Center out there fighting for the rights of uh, those who otherwise wouldn't have wouldn't really have a voice. And certainly when we're talking about uh, the automatic payment for labor union representation, you don't have a voice. It's an automatic, uh, you're in, and uh, no choice, let alone voice. Uh, 
Doug, you know, as you uh, developed and continued this work and you have fought labor unions, both in the private sector and otherwise, I'd like to get your sense of public sector labor unions and the impact that public sector labor unions have uh, in the state of Minnesota. Yes, it's a very, very big impact, bigger than it should be in my estimation. Uh, we haven't had public unions in uh, in in, uh, in government uh, before about 1970, and so it's a very recent innovation, and it's one that even FDR, big fan of unions, said should never happen. You can't have, in his view, uh, public employees in unions because the people are supposed to run the government, not the not the actual employees hired to discharge the functions of government. But what has happened is exactly what FDR is afraid of. These public unions are taking over the running of government. And we have the instances that you alluded to where we've got the teachers union basically running the Democratic Party. And the teachers union is supposed to be subject to voters, subject to residents, subject to parents. And yet we've all seen the example of the teachers union uh, being uh, uh, overcoming parents' objections and silencing parents who have objections to, say, school closures or vaccination requirements or masking requirements or the terrible critical race theory uh, biased uh, teaching that is going on in the schools. And yet when parents raise their hands and their voices against this, the teachers' union shuts them down. Just this morning I was talking to a parent who is having their uh, having their voice silenced by a school board that's dominated by teachers union designated representatives. And this is true not only in Minnesota, but almost all over the country. So my view is that the, the public unions, I'm not against public unions, but they should not have the voice they have uh, controlling our government institutions. And that is what it has come to. So I think the kind of clipping of the wings of the public unions that has occurred in Wisconsin, for example, and many other states is long overdue, and Minnesota should follow in the same direction. Uh, People who want unions, that's fine, but they should have uh, the kinds of things that that politicians always have. you got to get reelected. Well, have any of these unions ever been reelected? No. They've been sitting there representing people since the 1970s, have never had a recertification election, even though our politicians have to, of course, be be reelected every two or four years. And uh, that's the kind of thing we ought to have. We ought to have controls. All we can do in the legal area is fight within the system we have and within the constitutional rights we have to limit their power. We're doing our best to do that. We have at least a dozen cases going on involving the teachers union, AFSCME, SEIU, many of the other public unions. Uh, private unions are another matter. They have their role, and we're very happy with people uh, in the private sector who elect uh, elect to be represented by unions. That's one thing. They've got a productive economy. They've got competition. They can't simply tell the employer what to do. The they way have market they can. forces. Yeah. They're monopolies in the public sector, and that's a bad thing. You can't have a union when you've got a monopoly situation as we do in the public sector. So that's why we focus on that. Well, it's, uh, it is critical work, very important work. I was on a panel representing employers 
against, uh, well, on the other side of some uh, labor union speakers uh, a few years ago, and I called public sector labor unions a 50-year mistake. And, <laughs> and we need to correct the mistake. And uh, they didn't like that much. I wasn't asked back. But there are a lot of reasons for why that is the case. We're talking to Doug Seaton, uh, the founder and head of the Upper Midwest Law Center, uh, doing the work of common sense uh, citizens of the state of Minnesota and elsewhere in the Midwest, and doing that work in the court of law to uh, make sure that we rein in government overreach and constitutional and statutory violations. We'll be right back after this short break. Uh, and while we're on break, you know, I, as I say, it's not a sh- it's not a long break, so you've got to make sure uh, to stay close so you get right back and you don't want to miss our discussion of the Supreme Court activity related to defunding the police. But while we're on this short break, go to ParkerDK.com. You'll find what is often referred to as an award-winning website. Parker Daniels Keyboard, premier law firm downtown uh, Minneapolis. And uh, make sure to stay with us. We'll be right back. As we talk, uh, it's just smart, plain talk. That's all it is, straight out, common sense. And uh, today we talk law. We're talking with the founder and head of the Upper Midwest Law Center, which is in a knockdown, dragout battle over law and order, really, over our protection. Should the police department in the city of Minneapolis be defunded? Is it allowable for politicians to defund uh, the police? Now, note, uh, that issue went to the electorate, directly to the people, and the issue of defunding lost. Uh, Nonetheless, there is some claim that the politicians, the few, can decide it anyway. And what the Upper Midwest Law Center is doing is they are standing in the breach. They are at the point of the spear trying to defend citizens' rights, to prevent the politicians from going beyond what uh, most people who know how to read can see in the Minneapolis City Charter is not allowed. (laughs) And those arguments are being made and they have... Uh, they have been made successfully, then overturned, and now they are being heard by the Minnesota Supreme Court, which accepts very few, a very small percentage of cases that are submitted to the court to be heard. And one of them that they have accepted and are now hearing is the Upper Midwest Law Center's claim that the city of Minneapolis has gone beyond their city charter in attempting to defund or uh, eliminate or reduce below any minimum standard the police force in the city of Minneapolis. We uh, are here with Doug Seaton, and 
Doug is uh, the lead attorney on the matter. Doug, tell us a little bit about uh, about the background of how this matter started and wound its way to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Very good, Andy. Happy to do that. Uh, it started, of course, in the aftermath of, of uh, George Floyd's death and the riots in Minneapolis. We had a terrible uh, breakdown in law and order. We had uh, many, many criminal incidents going on. And we had a, uh, a political uh, chaos that was demagoguing this issue and essentially saying they could remove the police, replace them with some storybook uh, uh, operation that was somehow going to keep the peace without, uh, without uh, raising a gun or without uh, raising their hands. And uh, everyone who's realistic about crime knows that's just not possible. You have to have the police power to do police work, to maintain uh, public order. Uh, and the clients we represent, uh, are uh, they're very much in favor of reform of the police and, and uh, holding people accountable for bad conduct, but they certainly don't want the police defunded. And our clients are all from North Minneapolis. They've been neighbors for many, many years. You mentioned one of them. Don Samuels happens to be one of our, one of our clients, he and his wife, uh, Sandra. Uh, but the original starting point of the of the case was I just called up someone who was quoted in the Star Tribune saying, I don't want the police defunded. We need more police help in the north side against crime to keep families safe. And this is Kathy Spann, who was the original uh, first uh, first lead plaintiff. I called her up and I said, at the Upper Midwest Law Center, we'd like to represent you. We think there's a way to fight against this police defunding. And if you'll have us, we'll represent you. It won't cost anything. We're a nonprofit, and we'll do it. But I said, you have to understand, they're going to call us right-wing zealots, and you're going to get the, get the backlash on that. So you have to be prepared for it. We're nonpartisan, nonprofit, but you'll still be hearing those, those uh, allegations all the time. And they, they persevered. They've been very glad to have us, and we've been very proud to represent them. Uh, and by the way, Ms. Minneapolis. Yeah, Miss Spann and certainly the Samuels uh, are far from any right-wing zealots. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Yeah. They're certainly not. And, uh, and they've lived there a long time. As you know, Don Samuels sat on the city council as a Democrat, and uh, we haven't quizzed anybody, but my guess is all. Uh, Probably all of our plaintiffs are Democrats, and uh, and so they're not they're not fans of police misconduct, but they certainly know that they, we have to have police. And what they say is, we need both: we need reform and we need police. We need more police, and we certainly need the minimum that the charter requires. And as you know, Andy, that's what we are enforcing. We're enforcing the the uh, charter requirement, which is unusual in the country, that says there must be at least 17 police officers per thousand population in the city based upon the latest census. And our city council has been dragging its feet on doing that. And so we've had to sue them. We took it to court. We won in front of Judge Anderson, and we're defending that appeal now against an appeal now, that victory in the Minnesota Supreme Court, as you indicated on, on September 9th, uh, pardon me, on June 9th, we're going to have that argument in front of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Very important. It, it really is uh, critical, and uh, Judge Anderson uh, got it right at the uh, district court level. You, you, you went to the Court of Appeals. 
Uh, did they affirm Judge Anderson? They they actually reversed her in what we think is a bad decision and erroneous yeah, that's what decision. I thought. Uh, because if anything, we have a very clear charter that says this is the minimum that must be maintained. And uh, we had a plain language uh, amendment that sort of messed up the way you read the charter. And that's what the Court of Appeals relied on. But we know the law says that's not to be taken as any change in the substance of the charter requirement. It's got to be read as a requirement of exactly this number of police at a minimum. And we're 200 officers probably short of that at the moment. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Doug Seaton. Uh, head of the legal team at the Upper Midwest Law Center that is taking it to the city of Minneapolis for ignoring their obligation to keep us safe and having a police department uh, that does just that. Uh, When we get back uh, with you after this short break, and by the way, go to ParkerDK.com while we're on break. We're going to talk further with Doug about what's happening at the Supreme Court the arguments that are being made, and how he anticipates the oral argument to go in just uh, a few short days. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's the hour. Parker, and once again this week, we just have Smart Plane Talk, talking politics, Israel, and the law. This week, focused on the law and the defunding movement in the city of Minneapolis, which apparently has gotten to the mayor and the city council members to the point where they're ignoring the Minneapolis City Charter, a charter that, at least this language, has been in place since when, Doug? Uh, 1961. 1961. Yes, indeed. 1961. Woo. Uh, So, yeah, that's a long time ago. I think that's when I was born. So, Doug, uh, we're talking to Doug Seaton, head and uh, head of the legal team and founder of the Upper, Upper Midwest Law Center that is putting the fight to the city of Minneapolis now before the Minnesota Supreme Court on the issue of whether the city can continue to ignore the clear language of its uh, charter, this language dating back to 1961, as we just mentioned, and drop the police force well below the minimums clearly stated. Doug, what is the opposition argument here. I I know that uh, as a good lawyer, and you taught me this well, you need to understand your opponent's position better sometimes than even your own uh, in order to defeat it. And you've done quite well in this case already, and hopefully you will at the Minnesota Supreme Court. But what is the city's argument when the language seems pretty clear? Uh, Well, it is a good question, Andy. Uh, We're not persuaded We certainly hope the Supreme Court isn't. But the the argument is that somehow the mayor has discretion to not meet the requirement of the charter. Now, the charter is very clear as to what it requires, 17 officers per thousand. uh, And it's been that way since the 60s, uh, as you said, since 61. 
And the reason it was adopted was because there was a terrible crime wave and people know, knew that they needed more police officers on the beat to control the crime problem and do it responsibly, of course. But we needed the police to do it. So that's the, the argument is that somehow the mayor has discretion not to do that. Uh, and that the city council is obligated to uh, fund the no- enough police officers, but the mayor somehow has discretion not to actually hire them. And that's only because the, ch- the, the plain language amendment separated the duties of the, of the uh, uh, city council and the mayor in terms of who had what responsibility. The council fun- does the funding and the budgeting. Uh, passes the money, the money numbers, and the mayor has the uh, the operational control of the police department and and uh, supervises the chief. But those those functions were combined uh, in the time the 1961 charter was adopted, and there's a single obligation to fund and hire, in our estimation, and and deploy uh, those officers. And yet we have the argument made that somehow it's all discretionary. We don't think if it's discretionary, then the law doesn't mean anything at all. Yeah, it means our, nothing. What's the language for? What's it for? So we have a charter which is really akin to the city's constitution, as you know. And if, if we don't have the voters passing a charter provision which had a clear intent, a clear problem to cure and have that make uh, uh, stick and, and be enforced, we don't know what kind of rule of law we can possibly expect to have. Doug, who is uh, supporting your position out there uh, as you know it uh, at the Supreme Court? Well, we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of individuals uh, chime in and support us. As you know, as you said um, uh, a little while ago, Andy, uh, what happened after our lawsuit and our victory is that the proponents of defunding tried to change the charter because they knew we were right, and that's our assessment at least, and they didn't get that to happen. A substantial majority voted against the amendment that would have gutted this requirement in the charter uh, and turned it into a nothing, essentially. And so the people have spoken. We've got amicus briefs coming in to support us as well. We believe that we're right, and we are very hopeful that the Supreme Court will see it our way. And we, I guess a couple of things we would mention quickly to indicate why we are hopeful about the Supreme Court's uh, view of this. We have. Uh, Let's uh, talk about that on the other side of the break, uh, Doug. I, yes. I, I absolutely want to hear about some of the optimism that you have in terms of why the Supreme Court will see it your way in protecting the citizens. Of- Good to do it. Yeah. We'll do. We're gonna we're gonna take this short break. You are listening to the Victory Hour. And during the break, go to parkerdk.com. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The Victory Hour. And every week on Sundays from 4 to 5, you can tune in to 1280 AM, The Patriots. If you miss, you can tune in from 6 to 7 at fifteen Freedom 1570. And, uh, you know, if you'd prefer, you can watch us on Facebook. You can live stream us from anywhere if you can't tune in. And we have regulars out in San Francisco to New York to Florida, up here to Minneapolis, down to Houston, Texas, and across the seas. They listen in Israel as well as the U.K. 
to the Victory Hour, and uh, we welcome you all once again. Smart Plane Talk, we're talking to Doug Seaton, head of the Upper Midwest Law Center. He founded the organization uh, brilliantly in order to take care of citizens who are out there who really don't have a voice, and he's giving them a voice in our legal system, fighting against government overreach, fighting against constitutional and statutory violations that infringe upon uh, the individual freedoms and rights that are so important to us all. We were talking with Doug about the defunding the police movement in the city of Minneapolis, which has now caught in with elected officials in the city of Minneapolis, caught on with elected officials there. And uh, the only way to put a halt to it, the last barricade uh, to hold back the forces uh, against law and order is the judiciary. And so Doug Seaton has taken it to the courts. He is now sitting in front of uh, the Minnesota Supreme Court on this very important issue. Doug, um, on the other side of the break, I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish your comments regarding how the Supreme Court should view this case. Yes, Andy, happy to do that. Uh, we're very hopeful about the, uh, the prospect of a decision from the Minnesota Supreme Court. As you know, the court doesn't have to take cases. It's a certiorari, as they say in the law. And that means the court can decide to take the case or not. So the Court of Appeals decision, which reversed uh, Judge Anderson's decision that we were right in in seeking to enforce the charter, the Court of Appeals reversed that, and we are appealing that decision to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And the court could have said, oh, no, we're not going to take that appeal. And it could have left it sit with the Court of Appeals decision. And that would have been, unfortunately, the end of the story. But they didn't. They took the case. As you said, that's a very uh, small number of cases that are taken. So we're encouraged by that. But not only did they take the case, but they agreed to expedite the the hearing and the decision. Uh, And that's very important. We requested that. And uh, the the advantage of that is that the court could, at least you can't, uh, it's not certain, but the court could issue a decision after this hearing on the 9th of June in time for the original return of the uh, of the uh, mandamus order that judge anderson issued judge anderson had said at the beginning you've got to do this you've got to meet these numbers and you got to come back to my courtroom by the end of june of this year to explain where you stand on that or why you haven't and if so why not and uh, we're very hopeful that the court in taking the case and in deciding to expedite it has at least a possible we have the Uh, We have an inkling. It's never a good idea to predict what a court will do. It's up to the justices. But we believe they're likely to reverse or change at least the order of the Court of Appeals and restore, at least in part, the uh, order of Judge Anderson or return the decision to her for some, some changes that the court might direct. So we're very hopeful that we have a good, the prospect of a good decision from the Minnesota Supreme Court. Well, I can uh, only say we wish you the best. Uh, I'm sure that I speak for uh, most of, if not all of our listeners here on the Victory Hour. We wish you the best of luck in that endeavor. It's important. It's critical for all of us uh, who are citizens in the city of Minneapolis, Hennepin County, 
but frankly, the entire state of uh, Minnesota. Doug, I want to turn your attention quickly to see, uh, did the Upper Midwest Law Center take any cases regarding uh, the mask mandate or vaccination or the COVID uh, pandemic while it was raging or since? Yes, that's a very good question, Andy. We actually have a case pending still against uh, uh, the governor's order to require mask mandates because we just don't think there's legislative authority for that. You mentioned that we fight against statutory violations and constitutional violations. Well, we think both were involved there. So that case is continuing. And even though the order's been withdrawn, rescinded, we think that it still should be heard by the courts and, and that we should have a, a decision that says the governor just didn't have authority to do this. And uh, we hope to have that, that outcome within, uh, within a few months. We also have many cases dealing with the vaccination issues. Uh, they take the form of battles in, in state and federal agencies or violations of people's religious liberties and their right to uh, an exemption for either medical or religious reasons. So we have a whole slew of those cases going on against the Federal Reserve Bank, against private employers, against public agencies again and again. Uh, So those cases are all underway. And we had the original closure case against the governor when he issued the emergency order. We said, you just don't have authority to do this. We challenged it. We went to federal court under the U.S. Constitution, and we won the fight in favor of the churches and synagogues who were shut down in a really discriminatory way as opposed to big box stores and sporting events and what have you. And we said, you can't treat uh, churches and synagogues this way, and we won. We got an, an order that extends to all churches and synagogues in the state, not just our plaintiffs, but every one of the churches and synagogues in the state that says we have a right to stay open and be treated no differently than you're treating Target or the Twins. You know, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, Doug. Very few, if any, lawyers are doing more important work than Doug Seaton is in the state of Minnesota. And a big thank you uh, to Doug for, you know, really taking on the Lord's work for little or no uh, pay, as most of his clients uh, do not pay for this nonprofit effort uh, to protect our rights, whether it be COVID mask uh, mandates, other, other uh, government mandates, uh, labor union mandates and requirements, uh, the city of Minneapolis overreach or ignoring their own city charter. It goes on and on. And if you want to uh, support the Upper Midwest Law Center, uh, Doug, where should uh, folks go? Thank you, Andy. Uh, We'd certainly urge people to go to our website. You put in your search engine, just Upper Midwest Law Center, and you'll find our website and with much information and an ability to donate automatically there. You can certainly also do it the old-fashioned way and send us a check. We're at 8421 YZ Boulevard, Suite 300 in Golden Valley, 55426. And, uh, and that, we request your help. We need it. We, we can't do anything without the help of our donors. And the uh, great work is not just talk. He, uh, he's walking the walk and uh, he's winning the wins. And that's what it's all about. Uh, it's, it really is amazing because, as you know, uh, the position of uh, the conservative voice has been ridiculed in mainstream media. But it's common sense 
And the silent majority is behind you, Doug. No question about it. Keep up the great work. I will mention that uh, we've talked a lot on this show about misinformation from the Department of Health in the state of Minnesota during uh, COVID and all those many months, the information coming out of the Department of Health in order to drive policy as opposed to reporting on policy. And uh, Kevin Roach was on the show talking about just that uh, a number of times. And I know you've worked with him. Thank you very much for being with us this Sunday on the Victory Hour. Join us next Sunday when we'll have yet another chapter in protecting all of us. Law and order, Mark Plain talk. Why is Four o'clock Sundays, the Victory Hour. Thank you, Doug. Be well. Thank you, Andy. Until next time, he leaves you with these words from Winston Churchill. All the great things are simple, and many can be expressed in a single word. Freedom, justice, honor, duty, mercy, and hope. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.